Welcome to Women in Trade, a podcast for up-and-coming professionals like you in the field of international trade. Kelly Kemock is your guide on this journey, an accomplished lawyer and trade compliance consultant who's passionate about helping young women navigate this complex field, equipping you with the tools and resources you'll need to pursue an exciting and meaningful career. You'll hear candid interviews with other successful female leaders and benefit from their experience. It's time to build the career of your dreams. Here's your host, Kelly Kemock. Today, we have Amy Morgan on the podcast. Um, so she is the chief product officer of a startup called Flavor Cloud that started in September 2017. And I'm really excited to hear about your, your new role. Can you tell us a little bit more about where you are today and then, you know, your career path and how, what, how it took you to where you are today? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Thank you for in just asking me and inviting me to be on your podcast. I've been listening uh, and you've had a, quite a distinguished uh, array of women on this podcast, so I'm very honored. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Flavor Cloud, Chief Product Officer. I am on week three in this new role, and I couldn't be more excited. Flavor Cloud is an end-to-end cross-border solution uh, that enables uh, online merchants to sell their products internationally. Everybody who's listening or most of the people listening to this podcast know how hard cross-border shipping and compliance is. So how do we democratize that for this new modern retailer, the, the merchant? So that that's what we do. First of all, let's talk about your title, Chief Product Officer. Yeah. What, uh, what are you what are you managing as Chief Product Officer? So in the technology space, when we talk about the product, we're talking about the technology product. We're talking about the technology that we're selling. So as chief product officer, my responsibility is really to prioritize what features need to be made to or made built into the product to make it more usable, more friendly, more intuitive, uh, provide more value to the user, right? So a big piece of my job is strategy. What features do we need to build for the future? Where is the market going? What do our customers need to be successful? Uh, if I have customers that are using us today, how can I help them sell more internationally? How do I make that easier for them? So that's like a very high level uh, explanation of the title. Uh, and it's very similar to what I did uh, at Avalara, which is where I came from just before this. Think of it as like the uh, mini CEO of the product, just the product, not the business, just the product. Is there any aspect of your role that is compliance and making sure that, you know, the the laws of each country are complied with, or is that a different role altogether? No, no, that's very much in the role. So because Flavor Cloud, the product, is an end-to-end -end solution that enables merchants to sell globally, that includes the shipping, and we all know that uh, shipping is only successful when it arrives at its destination. And compliance is a big piece of how you get some an international transaction actually delivered. So, so compliance uh, is inherent in the product that we're building. If I have customers who struggle with compliance or we find out that uh, the shipments that we are facilitating are non-compliant for any reason in whatever geography, that comes back to me. How how do I fix whatever went wrong, or how do I fix whatever was uh, whatever oversight may have existed 
to ensure that doesn't happen again. So we work really hard, but you know, when you're innovating in a tech product or a tech environment like this, you may not capture everything. But what I have going for me is that I've been doing compliance related work for nearly 20 years. I'm a licensed US customs broker. My origin story is in compliance. I come from big business to business compliance. So it's just sort of in my DNA already. <laughs> so I can't look at something and not think about the compliance aspects of it. So. It's not just that you, the, the product that you're selling is making things easier though. So how does the product also help the client save on shipping and compliance costs? So Flavor Cloud is the largest, has the largest network of carriers from which a merchant can choose. And uh, we have an algorithm that selects the appropriate carrier option or ship option from our 200 plus carrier options uh, in our network for the transaction. So it's a real time uh, shopping cart optimization experience. So a merchant, a, an online merchant doesn't have to sit there and think every time they have an international transaction, oh, should I use UPS for this one and DHL for that one? Does this carrier ship to Saudi Arabia? Does this carrier handle lithium ion batteries? Like they don't have time to think of, about that in an e-commerce environment. It has to be instant. It has to be reliable and it has to provide the best possible rates, the cheapest, most affordable options. So all of us as consumers, right? Sometimes we will pay more to get something faster or sometimes it's, it's not urgent. So we'll be patient. We'll choose the more cost-effective option, but we need to be able to select from options that are appropriate to that transaction. And the merchant's not going to think about it. All the merchant cares about is that they're selling to their consumer, that their consumer has a good experience. And that doesn't just end in the shopping cart, right? You can make a beautiful website where customers can find exactly what they need and get it in the shopping cart. But if you don't make that checkout experience and that shipping selection experience easy, if you don't actually get the product to deliver on time when you said it was going to be delivered, all those things are going to start eroding that customer experience. And that's what the merchant cares about. So that's what we help solve. This product is a business to business um, solution, right? So it's uh, we sell to businesses So we would sell to merchants, but we sell to merchants who sell direct to consumer. We say D to C. And it is for the merchant to decide how to ship. The consumer actually doesn't actually see your product. No, the, the merchant doesn't have to choose. That's the beautiful thing about what Flavor Cloud does. We choose for the merchant, but the merchants say, say if you have uh, an online store and you want to offer to your customers uh, an expedited DDP option, a standard DDP option, and let's say an express DDU option. That is what you configure. And then our algorithm does the, the rest so that you don't have to think about it. We examine what the product is. We examine the, the route, so the two from countries. We examine the customs regulations. So we do that instantly so that we only present, say, three options in the shopping cart, and then the consumer selects. So you sent me an article, which um, hopefully I can link to in the podcast notes as well. In that article, it mentions that, you know, the industry is broken. Can you kind of expand on how the industry is broken and maybe how your product might be helping to fix it? So again, 
we're all very familiar with how difficult it is to get a to get anything across borders for commercial purposes, whether it's a pallet, a container, or a small little package. Uh, it's it's difficult. If it's being sold for commercial purposes, there are customs regulations. You have to deal with different carriers. Uh, there's paperwork involved. All of these things. So just like in a traditional trade compliance environment, there's one person that knows the compliance stuff. And maybe you have to go deal with a customs broker. There's one person that deals with transportation and you have to deal with the carrier and what is the rate? You have to negotiate the rates. Uh, then you have to negotiate the rates for ship options that might be dependent upon what kind of product you're selling or products that get shipped together. Uh, and then you have to deal with carriers that may or may not service particular geographies. So all of these things, very fragmented. On top of that, in my trade compliance experience, some of the biggest issues is just around the paperwork. The commercial invoice doesn't properly describe the product. The invoice value isn't accurate. The uh, terms of sale aren't clear. Perhaps you need a phytosanitary certificate and you didn't know that. What the heck is a phytosanitary certificate? Uh, so stuff gets stuck in customs and you have to deal with so many people. Now think about if you are in an e-commerce environment where you're shipping small packages, you're not as big as a Walmart or a Target or an Amazon. So where do you go for customer service? Who helps you help your customer? Who helps you provide a positive experience when all you're trying to do is sell to customers all over the world who want your products? That's what we mean when it's broken. This space, this industry wasn't made, you know, with e-commerce in mind. It was built for big companies, right? This was the 90s, the Mod Act, right? It was businesses doing business overseas, importing their raw materials uh, so that they could sell tons of stuff and, and make lots of money. E-commerce is changing the calculus on a lot of this, and it doesn't work for them. How did you get your 20 years of experience? And then, you know, what do you use every day still? I've joked with other people that I'm the, um, the Forrest Gump of trade compliance, if you will. I kind of, uh, I feel like I've grown up with this thing we call trade compliance. Um, so let's go back to the 90s for a second. I'm in college at the University of Washington. I'm studying political science and I take one amazing class on international economy. I can't remember exactly what it was, but we were talking about the banana trade wars. And oh my God, if I wasn't hooked, right? So I started reading all the global trade stuff that was hot at the time, like Thomas Friedman. I've got the Lexus and the olive tree right here behind me. This was the first trade book that changed my life uh, that made globalization this hot buzz term. And I was just like, I couldn't get enough. I was obsessed with how humans just naturally have this instinct to connect with each other, whether it's trading goods or services or ideas. And I just, I was fascinated. And this is before the internet, remember? Like this is, this is just, we're trading bananas. That is the thing that got me hooked on, on this topic. So I, I kept with political science, but I ended up taking another two years in um, what the University of Washington called the Global Trade and Transportation Logistics Program. And it, <laughs> I mean, it's just my damn own dumb luck that, that the UW even had a program like this. And it was all about EDI. You learned about planes, trains, and automobiles. You learned about letters of credit, like old school trade stuff. But what that program did was open up 
so many doors. I ended up interning at the Port of Seattle in the seaport. I was an intern for the uh, World Trade Organization Seattle Host Committee, so the committee that was responsible for bringing the, the battle in Seattle in 1999 to, to Seattle. Um, I, was, I, I worked at the World Trade Center Seattle. Uh, I did all of these things while I was still in college because I had to be a part of this thing. I couldn't really tell you what it was yet, but I knew it was big and important and there were so many different pieces. Like I hadn't even discovered compliance yet. That hadn't, that wasn't yet like a, a big thing. So Amy graduates from uh, college. I'm working as a barista in a Starbucks, downtown Seattle. Back then, Starbucks was still this really cool, very kind of bohemian sort of place. So it was cool to be a barista uh, at a Starbucks back then. And you get to know your customers. And every day I noticed these two guys would come in, they would grab their coffee and they'd go sit at a table and they would work. Now, again, this is now we're talking about 99, 98, 99. Say, uh, yeah. So I would watch them work and I'm like, oh, this is really interesting. What do you guys even do? I was much, I was total smart ass. Uh, I was very obnoxious person. And I'm like, so what do you guys do? You come in every day and you just set up an office over here in the corner. And they said, well, we have an online transportation management company. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. No. What are the chances that here I am? I just graduated from the UW. I studied trade and transportation and I'm a global trade enthusiast, that these guys have a, an online a, a startup, a 1999 startup that, that did exactly the stuff that I was, I was interested in. So we, we, I took a break and I sat down at their table, inserted myself into their conversation. And long story short, uh, I ended up working there. Now I only worked there for a year. The company got sold and whatnot, but I made my own path in that instance. My very first trade job was, uh, was a dot-com in the 90s. So we all know how that ended up. So in the 90s dot com bust. And then I went to work at Nordstrom. I happened to take a class as part of that GTTL program on EDI. Oh my God, talk about a snooze of a class. But it was on EDI. But that job that Nordstrom was looking to hire an EDI compliance analyst. I can define EDI. It's a you know 30-year-old technology that a lot of the trade industry is still very much a uh, uh, user of, but mm -hmm. it was like how ASNs and, and invoices and, and documents were exchanged, you know, back in the day. So Nordstrom was hiring this. I needed a job. I got the job. And as, you know, a couple years in, uh, I discovered that Nordstrom had a trade compliance department. But when I discovered trade compliance, I, I just thought like the world had cracked open and angels started singing and unicorns were dancing and rainbows were everywhere because <laughs> I am a nerd and that kind of stuff turns me on. I, they started me off like just assigning tariff codes to products. That's all I did. And it was the best time. Like if any of, but any of you guys who are into tariff classification, I'm, it takes a special kind of dorky person to love that stuff. And I am that person. Um, Gosh, I love that you said that too, because um, what is it? I even love doing taxes. The same reason why I love classifying is because it's like a choose your own adventure. Like you read this and you're like, okay, well then I have to go here. Then I have to look at this and then I have to analyze this and you just kind of build it all together. It's like a little puzzle. And yep, I am totally right there with you. Uh, trade nerds who enjoy classifying. <laughs> Forever. No, okay. 
So, so Nordstrom, Nordstrom is what introduced me to, uh, to trade compliance. I studied for the broker's exam. Uh, I passed the broker's exam. Uh, I started doing audits and all of the basic trade compliance stuff. And the more I got into it, the more I was hooked on, like you said, the puzzle, I was hooked on, on being right about supporting the right answer. And I wanted more than the United States. And at that time, Nordstrom was only importing into the US and no exports. So wanting more, I went to Costco Wholesale, another Seattle, local Seattle company where I got to do the same thing, but I became a manager there. Costco's a huge company. We were starting to export. Uh, we do imports into all of North America. So it took me, it, it definitely elevated my classification game, but I had uh, at that time, what, what else popped up? CTPAT came on board. ISF became a thing. All of these new regulations popped up that forced me to grow and learn and expand my knowledge. I wrote some brilliant binding ruling requests you can still find on Cross today. All 72 of them are out there. Wow. <laughs> so Costco was awesome. Costco was really cool. But again, I don't sit still very well. If I'm not growing, um, I'm not happy. So I, I wanted more. I went to Amazon after that. And you have not, <laughs> and that's when I, I had to say stop. Like, so Amazon will, will, will take as much as you will give it. Uh, I love Amazon. I love the people there. I am a, a customer, all of the good things, but it was, it was crazy. I wanted worldwide. I got worldwide and it was one of the greatest experiences. But the cool thing about my, my role at Amazon is that's where I really started to get my hands and, and mind around these merchants. So we, we, most of us are familiar with the term FBA, fulfillment by Amazon. So it's not Amazon fulfilling the product, it's the merchant, but they're using Amazon to, to do this. Okay. So I started to watch the rise of these online merchants and I, I thought to myself, wow, they need compliance help. They just don't know it yet. So why, why this is where we can take trade compliance that Amazon was already doing, right? We're moving Kindles and Kindle products all over the world. Then why can't I use my trade compliance department and we could sell our services as a premium to these merchants? Now we become a, a profit center instead of a cost center. It was brilliant. But Amazon, there, we were growing so fast at that time that we couldn't, we never quite got to that place. But what I took away from, from that experience is like, okay, these, these merchants need help. They just don't know it. I ended up taking this idea, this little nugget of an idea. I left Amazon and I started fleshing out how I could turn this into a business. I went out on my own. I took my broker's license and I got a national permit. I was a, I was a broker out of my basement, out of here for small local Seattle companies, because I wanted to test my hypothesis that online merchants needed the same help as big companies, only they didn't know it and they weren't going to buy it. So how do I turn this into a business? I proved my hypothesis. I did something crazy. Um, a, my, a friend of mine convinced me to take my idea to what's called a startup weekend. I don't know if you've ever heard of, what, of one of these things, but they're these technology meetups, if you will, where you, you go, you pitch your idea to a room full of 20 year old engineers. And if they like your idea, they'll join your team. And then over the course of one weekend, you hack out uh, a rough prototype of, of your product. And then you have to pitch it. 
That's nerve wracking. It's like Shark Tank. So I did that. I hit, you don't know, sheer fear until you stand up as a, at that time, a late 30 something in front of a room full of 20 year olds who are used to hearing about dating apps and pet sitting apps and food delivery products. And you pitch them this idea about how you can make global trade easy for online sellers. I was so nervous they'd laugh me out of the room, but I got the biggest group of people because all these engineers wanted to solve a real problem, not just another you know, frivolous photo app or something like that. So at the end of the weekend, we pitched to a panel of VCs in the area and we won first place. Now I'm over the moon, geeky idea over one weekend and we won first place. So I'm like, there's a there there, I have an idea uh, and it's worth something. So I couldn't raise any money, but fortunately, Avalara, a tax software company here in the Seattle area, was trying to do something very similar. Avalara does, uh, they calculate sales tax as a technology solution. It's what they do, that's their bread and butter. And at the time they were trying to build, they wanted to build a landed cost calculator. So to us, we all know what that means. And, and bless Avalara's heart, they, they knew what it was. They just didn't know all of the different uh, nuances that go into calculating a landed cost. So I joined Avalara with all of my ideas from my own little startup and we built a landed cost calculator. We were doing some really cool things, but again, you guys, by this time, you know me well enough to know that that's just not good enough for Amy, right? I need to keep moving this idea forward. So Flavor Cloud, there's a, the, the woman, the CEO and founder of Flavor Cloud, Rathna Sharad is a brilliant, and inspiring human being. She's She and I have been industry friends for several years. I'm a big fan of what she was doing. I've watched her build this company and I'm like that, they're doing it right. I need to go be a part of that now. I did the landed cost, I did the compliance, I did all that cool stuff at Avalara. Now I wanna, let's go solve the shipping. Let's go take care of the shipping and compliance logistics piece. And that that's the super long, evolution of, of me. Yay. <laughs> that is so amazing. So the overarching theme of your development is innovation. I mean, are you able to talk about innovation? Can I talk about innovation? I wish your, your readers could see my video. Have you seen this? I don't know if you saw this on, on LinkedIn. Uh, and for the people uh, listening, I'm holding up uh, one of my proudest moments. Last year, it's still 2019, I was named one of the Puget Sound region. That's where Seattle is. We're in the Puget Sound here in King County, Washington State. And I was named one of the 12 innovators by the Puget Sound Business Journal uh, of 2019. So I was very proud of that. So you are right on with the innovation being the, the theme. But the, the reason I was recognized uh, was because I, I really am an advocate of pushing the envelope in industries that that need it and those underserved industries like trade and compliance things nobody thinks about how their stuff got to where it is and there's all the little steps involved and here i am shining a light on it and the fact that the business journal the psbj recognized that was one of my proudest moments making trade compliance sexy and great again right but but innovation is kind of the norm right now. We we have to we have to be innovative, and in trade compliance where the the rules the regulations weren't built for the new for the modern commercial environment, we have to innovate. How do I take the 
trade compliance, the code, the, the harmonized tariff codes, the rules of origin. How do I take all of these really heavy concepts and make them accessible to not a big business to business importer? Uh, you have to be innovative. And I think anybody who doesn't have that innovative mindset in trade compliance now is really doing themselves a disservice. So I, I just read Design Thinking, or I listened to the audiobook Design Thinking, and I have uh, every time I had to open up my spreadsheet and put down a new idea, I have like 19 ideas, and I really am learning a lot about innovation. I love that you were talking about how you tested your hypothesis, you made a prototype, you had all of these steps that are part of the innovation landscape, and and you literally just went through the entire book that I read, right? Like everything you did. Follows step by step, and and I do think that trade compliance is an antiquated kind of industry, and then you know it's our job to to bring it up to modern times. You are fixing the broken shipping industry and putting algorithms to things that were done on paper years ago. So absolutely where we need to go with trade compliance. And that was one of my questions: was what do you think the future of trade compliance looks like? Well, there are a lot of companies working on that idea right now. And that's why uh, it is so exciting for people to get into the space once they know about. So awareness is the first thing. Know that this space exists. And then there's so many cool things going on for for anybody to to find their niche in this space. So um, so the future is is here. So right now, the future is e-commerce. The, the, the future is how do we uh, apply the rules we know about today to right now, that's what we're solving now. Now, if you look beyond today, uh, what happens when uh, maybe we aren't moving physical products across borders, we're moving the idea of a product across a border for someone to 3D print at their own home. How do you text that? How, what is the harmonized tariff code for uh, my really cool Kanye West ceramic mug if I'm going to print it um, rather than import it from Vietnam. <laughs> That's where I think things will, will ultimately go, but we're thinking like way into the future. Right now, we have to figure out how to get our hands and minds around this e-commerce, this cross-border e-commerce environment, which is only increasing. You can't, no matter how high you make that duty rate, it's, you're not gonna put the demand for foreign goods back in the box. And I guess my, my question was quite narrow because I, I'm in the trade compliance space. I forget to use terminology like international trade. And I always say trade compliance, but um, as our conversation has um, touched on, trade compliance is a very small portion of what is international trade. So I guess a broader question would be, what is the future of international trade in general? What about you know transportation? What about environmental uh, regulations and sustainability that are all coming um, to be highly important uh, to different countries? Like how does that change international trade? You know that is a really awesome question, and I don't have answers for you. All I can do is speculate, but I'm trying really hard myself to understand that as well. I think I, I just downloaded a white paper about cross-border e-commerce and the environment. You're talking about more planes in the air, less boats on the water. You're talking about packaging, cardboard. This is coming off of the fires in the rainforest. I mean, it's there is so much happening. I don't 
I wish I had a crystal ball or a magic eight ball or something that would tell us where we need to go, but it's exciting no matter what. You could find, like there are so many jobs in, in new energy sources. Look at Elon Musk, and I thought I saw a picture on Instagram of a completely electric, I wanna call it a steamship, but what do you call it if it's not a steamship, if it's an electric ship uh, with containers on it? Like, how will containers change? So everything like from the hardware and the infrastructure, what happens if trucks start flying? Like we could go on and on and on about this stuff, but it's, it's trade is everywhere, right? So when you talk about innovation, you're talking about everything from packaging and trade compliance and social responsibility. That's your climate and your social uh, aspects of, of your products and, and how you're shipping. You're talking about geopolitical environments, trade wars. Um, you're talking about, you name it, pointed something. Like it's, it's the innovation and the opportunity to plug yourself into international trade as an industry is bigger than it's ever been. And that to me is exciting. That's why I can't just sit still. I can't just sit here and watch parts of this industry evolve and move forward and not be a part of that. As much as I love classification, I can't just sit there and classify. I need to go change the way people classify. I need to change the way uh, the world trades. That's always been one of my missions. I don't mean to ask you, you know, these surprise questions. It's just we're, we're seeing all of these innovations. We're seeing, you know, your new product coming up and, and it's going to change the world. Like, it's so silly to say it that broad, but it will because everyone else is going to have to follow suit. Um, regulations and economists are going to have to follow suit and understand what how that affects the status quo. Okay, so what piece of knowledge or experience do you use every day in your current role? I think in in the last, well, let's say my entire trade compliance for nearly 20 years, the tariff schedule, I think that's like the one super common denominator across every role I've had, because whether it was starting off as an entry-level position at Nordstrom where I signed the codes, uh, all the way through to Avalara, where the code is responsible for, for calculating the land and cost to something, you need to know the rate, which means you need to know the code. So I think that is one of the greatest common denominators is really understanding the tariff schedule and not just the hierarchy, not just uh, the, you know, the funny tariff specific language and how to read it, but really knowing how to apply it. So if you're an enterprising person working for, well, anybody really, uh, understanding how to tariff engineer something could make you a rock star. Knowing if your product is subject to certain regulations uh, is all dependent upon the tariff code. Um, being able to automate the classification. So we, I, I come from a place where I, I have the, I still have the, the old timey tariff schedule, all like 11 inches of it. Uh, it's in my garage, but I had to do it by hand. There are solutions now that are, they're, not all of them are great. Some are better than others, but they're all working really hard and innovating on how do we make tariff classification easy. So I would say, yeah, I would, I would have to hang my hat on uh, understanding the harmonized tariff schedule. It really is the basis of everything, it yeah. seems, in trade compliance, because you don't know what laws or costs are involved until you know what the product is 
and you and everything stems from from the HTS code. Okay. Yeah. Um, you can stare at you know that that 11 inch you know list of <laughs> or stack of papers of of all that data for as long as you want, but um, the secondary piece to that is, um, you know, I spend most of my time just reading customs rulings now and like other people's binding, <laughs> other people's work like yours, yep. uh, binding rulings that you submitted just to get an understanding of, of how, how the logic is applied. Yep. And in technology is advancing so fast that, you know, a binding ruling in 2009, it talks about technology that is no longer even used anymore. Right, right. So how can you classify a new technological item that came out when, you know, the custom, custom CBP hasn't even taken that into account? Well, and, and I think until, until the process, uh, until the customs authorities evolve themselves to evolve the uh, binding ruling process, uh, we're kind of stuck with some of these, the tools we have in front of us. So uh, in my, in previous lives, right, at Amazon or any of these companies who might be importing research and development material, black box stuff, super secret, the next great genius invention, and that technology doesn't exist. So in a lot of ways, you may have to educate the customs authorities yourself. I remember working for Amazon and we had to explain to, but you have to explain to the German customs authorities how a Kindle is different than a regular book. Like, think about that, right? So the role of a trade compliance professional, maybe this is the future here, is we have to educate our customs authorities. We need to educate the regulators uh, because they are certainly not going to have all of these answers. And it doesn't even have to be high tech. Uh, in my life at Costco, I remember, I think I even have some rulings out there uh, that had to do with valves, like fountains and valves and, and faucets and things like that. And I had to go down to the Seattle field office and with an actual sample and, and share with them, explain to them the, the different types of valves and make sure that they understood so that they could give me the best guidance. And that sort of a partnership is great when you're Costco, but if you are a seller on Amazon or a seller on Etsy, or you are uh, an e-commerce merchant, you have no idea that you even need to do something like this. So we'll, um, that's part of why I'm so passionate about solving this problem, because now I can be the middle guy for those merchants and, and help to advocate. But it might be a, it's on us. I think the onus is on us to educate our regulators. So my role previous to my current role was at um, Thomson Reuters. And so I worked on their global trade uh, management software. And no small company is going to be able to afford this massive piece of software that allows these big companies to, to handle their compliance. And so um, the, it might, you might think of it as like a, a cost uh, of, of entry into the business is so high because compliance, uh, you know, is such, is, is so costly to these smaller companies. Well, it's true, but it's my um, it's my feeling that it doesn't have to be in that what we know of as trade compliance today, and that's, yes, there's a, it's a cost of doing business. And yes, a lot of us come um, from backgrounds where we had to buy big pieces of software to help us do our jobs. But that's where I talk about the space is changing and that we, how do we make trade compliance or compliance period, we'll just, just say compliance, organic to the business processes that 
this new commercial seller is, is, is doing today. So they don't even know that they're doing compliance, but they're being compliant. So if I can be a part of a software solution that does that, that inherently keeps these sellers compliant without them knowing that it's compliance, um, then, then I'm winning. Uh, because one thing I learned when I had my own startup and I was testing my hypothesis is that, yeah, they, these merchants, they need help. They need trade compliance help. But what I also learned is that they won't buy it. They will not spend money on it because they don't think they need to. They believe it comes with whatever shipping service that they're buying or what that they partnered with or, or contracted with to, to move their stuff. So they are not going to spend money on compliance. So how do I instill compliance into what they're already doing so that they can be successful and their products can move uh, seamlessly to where they're going? If we can pivot to a completely different topic, do you have any advice about being you know only woman in the room or you know how, how to deal with um gender issues in the workplace um remember back at the in the in my origin story uh, i studied in the late 90s uh, a global trade transportation and logistics program at the university of washington and i was one of two women in this program this entire program uh i don't really see the word no as an obstacle. I just see it as something I need to, you know, I can, I can get around this. So it's not like I saw the lack of women as being a deterrent from the space. I just, you know, I just kept charging forward and never really thought about it. Uh, and then the longer I worked in uh, trade, I noticed on the trade compliance side, uh, lots of women, lots of women are customs brokers and work in brokerage offices and work in trade compliance. Uh, my first trade compliance manager was a woman. Uh, my second trade compliance manager was a woman. Now that I think about it, actually, all of my trade compliance managers were women. Uh, when I when I think, uh, but when you have to deal with the shipping side, that's where it becomes more male dominated. Um, in technology as well. So being a woman, uh, a woman in technology, the last six, seven, many years, that's when it, it wasn't because of trade or because of shipping. It was because of technology where I found myself being the only woman the only executive around the table uh, that looks like, you know, me. Um, and that was, it was hard. So if I were to give any advice on that, it's to not compromise yourself. Don't make yourself small and play small because you think that's the role that you're supposed to play. Uh, I know that sounds like an Instagram motivational post or something, but it's really true. And I think it's worth repeating that take up space, be heard, speak up. Because if you, if you have a question, chances are everybody else has the question, but men are wired differently. They may not ask it. You ask it, you look like the smartest person in the room. If you speak with confidence, you know your material. And all, all the women that I've had the pleasure of working with, they, they are the smartest person. They are the smartest people in the room. Not everybody speaks up. Not everyone takes that idea they had and acts on it. So, so my advice on, on the issue of gender is to take up space, to be heard, and to, to act on whatever crazy idea might pop into your head, to just to try something 
different. And if you fail, you fail fast and you move on to something else. Like take what you know and just continue to evolve yourself. And as you evolve yourself, you're providing value back to your, your company and you're creating your brand, uh, your own personal reputation as somebody who is fearless, who is knowledgeable, who is, isn't afraid to um, speak up and be a, a very active participant around the table, no matter how many other women are around that table. And I'll tell you one other funny gender thing, because it, it is on my bucket list. <laughs> it's been on my bucket list to make the cover of American Shipper magazine. How dorky is that? I don't know why or where this came from, but I remember about four years ago, American Shipper, great publication. This is not a, a, a dig on, a, on, a, on, a, on American Shipper by any means. I, I love those guys. But uh, I remember there was a cover and the cover was, and I think I, I have it around here, was the changing face of global trade. And it was for middle to you know older white men. And I'm like, wait a second, that's not the changing face of global trade. I kept <laughs> it on my desk for a long time for as, as inspiration, right? So, um, but I think it is changing. I think we're in that moment right now. So it is a great time for women in trade um, to be recognized. Do you have any advice um, on you know, mentoring or career advancement or any sort of advice you might have for, for women who might be interested in, in getting into this type of field? So my advice to any woman anyone actually, but any, any, anyone who's listening to this podcast who wants to get into uh, the trade space is one to understand the, the landscape enough to know that there are a million different things underneath this whole trade uh, umbrella. We talked about the shipping side. We've talked about the compliance side. You and I both have technology experience, right? So the technology is this whole thing or whatever it is, but first know that it's huge. And there is a, a role for everyone. But what people need more than ever, of all the people I've ever interviewed, the stuff that I'm looking for, regardless of your educational experience or where you came from, is your ability to think differently. Trade compliance specifically is about rules and about regulations. They're, they're very defined parameters that we need to work within. But I look for people and I am attracted to people who can think differently about how we achieve the parameters, how we achieve those rules while accommodating whoever the customer is, whatever problem we're trying to solve. So thinking differently and being creative and not being afraid to do something different in the name of compliance. I know people are very skittish about that. Oh, we don't want to be wrong or we don't want to take responsibility or there's too much risk here. But that is that the magic is in that risk. So not being afraid to think differently. And like I've, I've said it earlier and I'll, I'll say it again, is you're not always going to do it right. You, you will fail sometimes and that is actually okay. But if you fail, fail fast, get back up, try something next, um, try something new. Um, so that would be uh, one piece of advice. And my other piece is something that I practice constantly. I practiced when I decided to leave Avalara and, and take this um, leap with, with Flavor Cloud is to trust your, your guts. You know, those of us who work in international trade, we are similarly passionate. We're all a little bit wrong in our brains. We're all a little different um, <laughs> because we, we all love 
something about this space so much, but trust what feels right for you. If, uh, if a role doesn't feel right, if you don't feel that you're being respected, if you don't feel that you're being heard, if you, you think that there's a better way to do something, I, I just say, do it and apologize later. Trust what the little voice inside you is saying, because that little voice is often right. Your gut instinct is, is often the right instinct. Uh, don't settle. Don't do something just because that's the way it's always been done. And that's, and you don't think you can do it differently, especially, like I said, especially in trade compliance, where people are so afraid to do something different, the, the industry needs you to be different. And I think the last thing um, I'll just kind of iterate off the same idea, but the last thing I'll say on it is to, uh, you know, going back to the innovation conversation, this is going to sound weird, but some of my greatest successes have come from trying to work myself out of a job. If Every time I try to automate something I did, whether I had to automate a report because I didn't want to spend three hours every week running a report, or uh, when I was at Costco, I wrote my very first classification app because you can imagine how many items we were classifying at Costco. Like, how do I do this? I'm one human being. Um, I tried to write an app and that took me to you know my next place. At Amazon, it was how do I innovate to apply a trade compliance to this new rising um, you know, body of, of, of seller. Like if I, oh, I just constantly try to innovate and, and automate myself out of a job, great things happen on the other side. So don't be afraid of doing something better because you think yeah, you want that job security. There's, there's so much more work to be done, um, not to be afraid of that. So uh, that would be my advice for anyone getting uh, into or wanting to get into this space. That is great because I was actually talking with one of my contacts is in her first role in trade compliance. And she's worried that she's not being utilized you know she's not being utilized to to the extent that she knows that she can she can add more value and the only thing i could um you know advise her was well if you're sure that this is the right company for you then you need to ask you need to talk you need to say you know can i do more can i learn this can i help you with that i mean you you have to just be able to ask but more so to what you were just talking about was don't be afraid to leave I know yes. that's probably bad, maybe might be bad <laughs> advice, but don't be afraid to leave because there's so many different options. Well, don't be that, that for sure. And I stand by that, but I would say to this person, have her give me a call because I could, if she loves the company, um, yes, ask, do all those things. Of course, that's all great employee stuff to do, but why not just take the initiative and try doing something differently? If you think, if you have to run the same report and it's super boring and it's really lame that you have to do this one report, like what if you automated that report? Or what if you approached the role a little bit differently without asking for um, new stuff? You go out and find the new stuff and, and start doing it. And like I said, do it and then apologize later or do it and then people will realize, wow, how did we ever live without you? How are we not doing this before? Um, gosh, I could give her a million ideas just right here about, about what to do. And, and if she's still bored, tell her to call me. I've got lots of stuff to do over here. So I can do actually. And, and that is the other, the thing I love about talking with all these women on the podcast is because every single person that I have talked to is absolutely open to helping and giving advice. And like you said, you know, have them call me. Everyone is open to that. And so, you know, just to touch quickly on the mentoring piece is most people you will meet in trade compliance are willing to mentor you if they have the time. Obviously everyone's busy and they will be honest with you, but most people have this inherent 
you know, want to, to share their knowledge and, and help others. So I love that. Like, what good is it all for if, if you don't have somebody to share it all with, whether it's you and I getting together once a week, once a month to pontificate on innovations, or if it's, and, and mentoring doesn't have to be really heavyweight either, right? I, I don't have a ton of time. Uh, I do, I make time to have coffees with people and to try to pay it all forward because I've had so many great experiences in my career. But some of the best and easiest mentoring is you hit me up on LinkedIn, Amy, heard your podcast. I am struggling in my career because I feel like I'm being underutilized. Like I can fire you back an email or a LinkedIn message faster than maybe it would take us to coordinate a meetup time, right? Like, so that mentoring doesn't have to be this big formal thing. It could just be reaching out over social media, asking a question, and, and you don't have to have just one mentor either. I've had so many mentors. I've got mentors that don't even know they're my mentors. My husband is actually one of my mentors. I mean, this guy is amazing and I'm learning from him every day. People I work with, coworkers are mentors. And it's just, I think it all comes back to just have a support group or support unit. It doesn't have to be heavy and formal. It can be something really simple, but just don't be afraid to ask. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's the point of, of connecting. That's the point of talking is, you know, let's let's all do this together and share ideas and, and share encouragement. So I love that. We can we can leave it there. Okay. I really appreciate your time today. And it has been so great talking with you. I feel like I am renewed in like my love of trade compliance. <laughs> no, it was super fun. I, I love this. Um, and like you, I love connecting 